Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. Thank you um, for everyone. Gaise hopa, the watch draw wash rap. In our community, you would respond by saying ha. And I would say, um, it means um, to a group full of people, because our language um, depends on how many people are in the room and what time of day it is, so the greeting changes. And so it's like saying, um, I, how are you? I hope you're well. And when you say, ha, you said, you said yes, and I said, tawaya, which means I'm grateful. So uh, exchange goes back and forth. Uh, so I'm Laguna Pueblo in Navajo and Dol Yate uh, to any relatives I might have in the room here or in the spirit world from my mother's side. Um, in the time that I um, have this evening, I'm going to talk about um, not just the UN Declaration, but sort of the international movement, because I think it's important to understand how it came to be, and then other international instruments and, and fora or forums where the human rights of indigenous peoples are, are pressed or advocated. So I'm just going to take an informal poll first. How many of you, um, before you read the materials for this conference, knew what the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was? Oh, that's pretty good. How many of you have read the UN Declaration? Eh. Half? Okay. And how many of you have actually cited an article in the UN Declaration and something you've written? Oh, good. Awesome. Okay. That gives me an idea. Uh, if I can figure out. So I'm going to start with talking about some background uh, because I, the, the Declaration was um, really pushed by not only indigenous uh, scholars and lawyers, but really strong activists. So just some f- facts that are often cited. There's over 300 mil- 370 million self-identified indigenous peoples in some 70 countries around the world. Um, in Latin America alone, more than 400 groups. And there's the largest concentration in Asia and the Pacific, um, which a lot of people don't know. So what happened in the 70s really had some beginnings uh, much earlier. There's a, um, a leader, his name was Descaje. He went to the, what used to be the League of Nations in 1923 really to speak um, about the rights of their people. He was never allowed in because Canada insisted it was a domestic matter, and he was never allowed in, but he stayed there. A Swiss organization sponsored him, and he spent eight months speaking all over Geneva and educating people. Um, He went back in 1925, uh, and there was another indigenous leader who was Maori. He tried to go in 1925 um, to protest the breaking of the Treaty of Waitangi. And... uh, he went, uh, and he wasn't, neither was he successful. But these were early attempts and an understanding about how to, the, the need to go internationally to assert rights. Uh, and then after that, there wasn't a lot of activity internationally until really the 1950s in the International Label Organization. 
Um, they were concerned specifically about so-called native populations um, and the you know abuse of them. And so in the night in the night in 1957, this what's known as Convention um, 107 was passed by the International Labor Organization. Later on. Um, Indigenous advocates really criticized it as being way, uh, had much more of an assimilationist agenda. And so it was amended by this time um, with much more indigenous participation into 19, in 1989, and it's known as Convention 169. The U.S. is not a party to this convention. I think Canada is. But this has been cited in Latin America almost more than the U.N. Declaration, and, it, and a lot of, and especially um, in Asia as well. Um, it really concerns uh, social and labor rights, but um, it was one of the important pieces of... Um, one of the important instruments cited before the UN Declaration. So just a, a quick run through the UN Declaration process, and I really try not to call it UNDRIP. I, I really uh, try, please don't call it UNDRIP in front of me. And the other thing is, please in papers that you do, capitalize I when you write indigenous. Drives me nuts. Yeah. Um, and uh, so... So what was happening here, you know, with AIM, with the Black Panther movement, all of this was happening at the same time. You know, I wasn't part of it, but I, I have many um, elders and mentors who were part of this movement that was growing in the 70s. It was more of an awareness and a sense about um, broken treaties, what was going on. You had AIM, you had um, the beginnings of the International Indian Treaty Council, other organizations, and understanding that there were not going to get remedies in the, in the domestic courts, understanding that you had to go internationally to get, to get relief, and understanding um, you know, the role of the United Nations. And so this was happening not just in, in the Americas, uh, but also in other continents. And so what I'm told and what I've learned over the years is that um, indigenous people's activists began to talk somehow. And this was before cell phones, this was before email, before social media. But they began to share these experiences of, you know, colonization, of assimilation agendas, of their lands being taken, of residential schools or boarding schools. And there, these same things happened um, in all the continents, and they began to see this similar agenda of colonization. What was also going on internationally was a decolonizing process of former colonies like in Africa and Asia, and they were decolonizing. So indigenous nations started to say, we need to be part of this, and, and started to get really involved. There was, a there was a gathering in 1977 of world indigenous representatives, and it was, there are pictures that you can see, and they did like a, a, a procession in Geneva, and it was really an, a momentous event. And so um, then, um, these are some long words, but so within ECOSOC, there was a commission formed, um, a critical study known as the Martinez-Cobo study that was commissioned. And this, if you, have you ever heard of it? Who's heard of it in the room? This is a really critical study because it really set forth things like the difference between indigenous peoples and minorities. It set forth the specific problems of indigenous peoples and 
attempted not to define indigenous peoples, but to set forth some principles that distinguish indigenous peoples from other peoples in the world. So it was a really important study for indigenous peoples. And um, Dr. Martinez Cobo, who is gone now, identified the urgent need to come up with some minimum standards for human rights for indigenous peoples. Um, so in 1981, there was a, um, in 77, there was a conference of non-governmental organizations, that's what I say when I say NGO, and then again in 81, and then in, 90, in 92, there was actually a, a working group on indigenous populations, that's what they were called to begin with, and they were in place for a long time, but their mandate was to develop these minimum standards. And then what was important, although it seems like nothing today, but indigenous peoples really didn't have a voice. And so that subcommission made a decision to allow indigenous peoples to actually participate in the debates. And that was one of the first times that there was going to be major participation by indigenous peoples in, in elaborating human rights standards. Uh, so there was a first draft in 1994. And then there was a long, long process. And I got involved in the late 1990s. There was a group that held fast to this 1994 draft and didn't want to change a word. There were other groups who said, no, it can be improved. And so for a long, long time, there were different um, subgroups and regional groups, even within the indigenous caucus, but there also were um, the same within the states. Um, and so, the, of course, the big issues were the right to self-determination and control over natural resources and, and lands and how we defined that. So there were, there were at least um, sometimes more than one meeting per year. These negotiation meetings went on for two weeks at a time. They could be really intense. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing process. And um, the and caucus was, you know, pretty well-sized. Today, um, mm -hmm. there are people who, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you later, but I mean, there were still were differences within the Indigenous Caucus. And so um, then in 1995, under the Human Rights Council, at that time it was called, they, dis they decided on, uh, to form an open-ended intercessional working group. And so that was who, um, we had different chairs from different countries. And then um, fast forward. They hoped to do it within what was known as the first decade, international decade of the world's indigenous peoples, which ended 2005, didn't quite make it, extended it beyond that. And then, uh, you know, through another painful, we were so close about 2005, 2006 to, an, to adoption, and then a group of African countries decided that they, as a block, would delay it because they had to study more issues. And so we added at least a year on, um, and lots of negotiations had to take place. And I was really impressed because the advocacy, which I was a part of, was a lot of activists. And for a long time, I didn't call myself an activist because I had huge respect for indigenous activists. They didn't come with college degrees but they were really strong. They were really strong advocates, and so you had them, and then you had lawyers and scholars, and in the last years, they advanced, we advanced, had to advance really 
um, complicated, nuanced legal arguments about some of the articles. So it was, it, was, it was quite nuanced. And one of the things that we argued, and a lot of people, I don't think they realized this, was that a lot of the rights that we argued for already exist. They exist in the UN Declaration on Human Rights. They exist in treaties like the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. So these were not rights that were created out of you know, the air. But the big difference was that a lot of the Western human rights regime was about individual rights, and indigenous people were calling for collectively held rights. And that was huge. And some countries like France, which are big on individualism, said, no, we can't, egality, liberty, whatever, you know, we can't do that. It goes against what we believe. And they would say to advance, you know, and there was also a time, remember, when it was close to the Cold War, and people were really suspicious of collective rights because they were saying, oh, it looks like communism or socialism. So we had to spend a lot of time educating um, government representatives on what that mean, meant for us as indigenous peoples. Why, you know, we didn't call what we had communism or socialism. And so, um, uh, and, and to convince them that a lot of those rights already existed. And, what, and even, there were even some organizations in the world that had collectively held rights, like churches and so on. So we weren't asking for something that was just completely out of the blue. When it was finally adopted in 2007, um, after many negotiations that final year, there were four countries that voted no, of course, right? Um, there were a couple of abstentions. Um, but it was really something to be in the General Assembly. And have you ever been in the General Assembly in New York? Has anyone ever been in there? Yeah. You know, you're sitting in that big hall, and then there's one whole wall, and you see all the votes happening. And it was just so amazing after years of working to see all the green lights going on. It was amazing. Um, a lot of us sat there and, you know, just cried because you, you thought about all the years of work. And then, um, then eventually, you know, as you know, the four... Countries made statements, some pretty lukewarm, but um, made statements supporting the UN Declaration. So what it does is it establishes a universal framework of minimum standards. And it addresses in all the 40-something articles individual and collective rights, cultural rights, all of the issues that, that are under self-determination. Um, we negotiated all of those rights, health, education, employment rights, all of those. Um, and the, one of the most important things is there's a right to remain distinct. And that's part of what self-determination is. Sometimes I feel it's important to um, draw a little bit of a distinction between the civil rights movement and our human rights movement. Because in very general terms, I think the civil rights movement was so much about people wanting to be part of, they wanted the right to vote, they wanted to be equal to other Americans, to have all these rights, housing rights, education, and so on. And while we wanted the same things as indigenous peoples, a lot of the human rights fight, I believe, was about the right to be different. And so I think... Um, I think people sometimes too easily 
talk about the civil rights movement as, a, as if it's the same thing as the human rights movement of indigenous peoples. And I think there's, you know, it wasn't so much about self-determination and so on. So just a little thought there. So um, on, there are some minimum, you know, sort of important concepts that are part of it. One is the principle of non-discrimination. And this is from the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, wording from this. And I'm not going to read the slides to you because it drives me crazy when people do that for me. Um, but, you know, it's this really important um, concept of non-discrimination. That's a fundamental concept in human rights. And then this was included in Article 2 of the UN Declaration. It says equality. The preambular language, if you've read it, is really critical because it really gets at assumptions about and, and discrimination and racist um, thinking and policies towards indigenous peoples. And so this is a real strong statement that we're free and equal to all other peoples and individuals. And of course, you've probably heard that one of the big fights was over the S, right? of peoples. I mean, that was a huge fight to add the S to the word peoples. Had a lot to do with self-determination. Um, let's see. I want to just, yeah, here's the self-determination. This is, this almost tracks the same article in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. This was critical in the um, decolonizing movement of um, former colonies. And so this almost tracks it. And that's why, that was one of the fights with states, because they, they were afraid, um, they brought up this thing called territorial integrity, and they were afraid that indigenous peoples would start pulling out of states like colonies did. So that was like the big, that was the big bad boogeyman that they used uh, um, around um, supporting self-determination for indigenous peoples. So far, no one's really done that. You know, been over 10 years since the UN Declaration was adopted. Um, and so uh, here's another critical article that, you know, that people fought over. There's a series of uh, 25, 26, 27 address land rights. Um, and this was a really critical one because, uh, well, for many reasons. One, we don't, not all of us consider territory um, just land, like there's waters and coastal seas. And um, it was really important to per, to say that we have a we don't we just we don't just as as um, Mr. Jacobs said earlier we don't it's not just a resource it's that we have a relationship with with lands and territories and the other thing is um, I often tell this story that when we were negotiating this language. The word responsibilities, it's the only place in the, in the UN Declaration that says responsibilities, I'm pretty certain. And so um, many states said, well, you know, why do you want that word in here? This is about rights. And many of us said, no, we um, feel very strongly we need to leave it in because as um, we were, you know, taught that we have a responsibility to future generations and land is really core to who we are. And so um, it took a while, but we were able to keep the word responsibilities in. So at least certainly when I talk about the UN Declaration in my home community, we talk about land, the word responsibility comes up way more than the word rights. So I think it's a really critical 
article in that regard. What, what, have, what has come eventually, have, what are called as three mechanisms that address specifically individual, indiv indigenous people's rights. There's the UN Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. They meet once a year for two weeks in New York. It's 16 re uh, representatives who sit on the, U on the UN Permanent Forum. Um, 16 are elected by states. I mean, uh, eight are elected by states and eight are elected by indigenous peoples. Uh, and then um, the UN Expert Mechanism on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is smaller. It's seven experts, and they cover the seven regions of the world, and they meet once a year in Geneva. And they're smaller, and um, they have a, a more specific mandate. And over the years, the mandates have changed a little bit, and the three mechanisms have really tried to complement and not... Um, uh, duplicate one another. And then finally, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. The UN system has a lot of rapporteurs, but we were able to get one who would focus on the rights of Indigenous Peoples. And um, we've had three so far. The one currently is Vicky Tauli Corpus from the Philippines. And then I want to mention, because sometimes People think that the UN Declaration is the only instrument or the only place, but indigenous peoples are finding the importance of participating in other, using other international instruments and participating in other fora around the world. So I just want to go over some of them. So, and it's embarrassing the United States has, has adopted so few human rights uh, conventions, so I'm going to stick to the ones that the U.S. is actually party to. So the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, or a lot of people know it, is CERD. Um, there's a treaty monitoring body under this. It's the, 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 committee, the CERD committee, and uh, every four years they review a country's uh, compliance with this. <clears throat> and so many indigenous peoples and NGOs um, write what are known as shadow reports. Do you know what that means? So the United States says, oh, we've been doing fabulously. We do all these things. We don't, we don't do discrimination, and you know, we're so quick to uh, um, remedy. So then, all, so then indigenous organizations and peoples write, and they, we talk about all the terrible ways in which they continue to violate the convention. And so that's one way that compliance is monitored. Um, and then the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights has that article on has article 27 has to do with culture and that's one of the articles that we've used before when we submit reports when they've when the US has gone up for review um, on um, toxic waste on native land on um, sacred sites uh, and so on also prisoners rights um, violence against women um, uh, you know, the, there are more issues arising around um, uh, adoption and taking of indigenous children, and even though we have the Indian Child Welfare Act in the United States. So this is a place to raise those issues. And then what happens is the civil society and NGO community, um, they submit these reports, and then they advocate, and they go to the actual... Um, meeting where the United States has to respond. And then the, the monitoring committee writes a report with recommendations. And you know, if you get recommendations that support um, things that we advocate about, then we can use those domestically 
because they also call on the United States not only to, uh, to implement these conventions at all levels of government, meaning state, county, city. So um, we use those a lot. And then the Human Rights Council, which oversees the ICCPR, is also a place they meet usually in well, in September, they have an, an indigenous um, agenda on their, on their uh, I mean, an item on their agenda, and that's when people tend to go. Um, but they have time on their docket just for indigenous issues, and so that's a time for indigenous peoples also to go and raise their concerns. Um, and then some new ones that are, I know less about them, but they're really critical. You read about these, the Convention on Biodiversity, Article 8J, and you, you know about, you've heard about the Nagoya Protocol. There's a growing group of indigenous peoples involved in this process. Um, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, you all know about the Paris Agreement. So more and more indigenous peoples, they just created an indigenous peoples platform, and they'll have sort of a liaison um, kind of function, and so we're going to have indigenous um, representatives from each of the seven regions who are going to be uh, per, uh, participating in this, in the implementation of this convention. And then one that I participate in, and let me say that traditional knowledge and protection for traditional knowledge is a concern that runs through the last three that I've listed. More and more, traditional knowledge is being appropriated. Um, and so how to protect it um, within the Convention on Biodiversity and how to honor and protect uh, indigenous knowledge um, within the framework on, you know, uh, Convention on Climate Change is, is, is a lot of what they um, advocate. And then in the World Intellectual Property Organization, um, one that I've started to participate in, um, there's a, a committee that specifically focuses on traditional knowledge genetic resources, it's like seeds, um, or DNA, people's DNA, as in the National Geographic Project, um, and traditional cultural expressions, which are like recordings um, and some forms of art. In theory, they've been at it for about 16 years to come up with a binding instrument to protect these things. But... Rather, when I first started going, rather than human rights lawyers, it's patent and trade lawyers who go. And what we say is there's no need for corporations to go because the United States people basically put forward their interests. So they have a very um, strong position for what's known as the public domain. And it's, it's, a, it's a very Western idea which comes from intellectual property law, that you should protect the public domain. But for me, it's a very arrogant kind of thinking that if I want to know something, I should be able to go and find it. I should be able to access any secret of any indigenous people or have access to anything. If I can't find it on the computer, I can go pay for an expensive tour to go on an eco tour and I can learn about these indigenous peoples. Or um, And so, you know, there's a lot of um, taking of indigenous knowledge. And, and so, but it's that thinking. And so much has been stolen, and now it's in the public domain through theft. And what's difficult is to protect it now because it's difficult to go backward. But so a lot of our argument is 
um, we need to come up with an, with, we can't do it within the present intellectual property law system. We have to do it a different way. And what we're trying to do is apply the minimum standards from the UN Declaration in all of these forums. That's the idea, that the UN Declaration has minimum standards for um, indigenous peoples' rights, and that all of them should be observed in these other forums. So that's kind of the approach that advocates take and are taking in these other forums. And then finally, I want to talk about the Americas. And uh, someone from Latin America once uh, gave me a spanking and said, um, just reminded me that America's not just the United States. So now I'm really careful and I'm real conscious of not, I don't call the United States America. Guatemalans are Americans. Argentinians are Americans. So I don't call the United States America because America's a continent. We're all Americans. And so um, the Organization of American States is another regional organization. There are, re there are organizations like the Organization of African States, something in Asia. But of all the regions, the OAS has the most, I think, um, advanced, at least on paper, um, set of, of human rights standards for indigenous peoples. Almost parallel with the UN Declaration, I was um, one of many who participated in negotiating the American Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It has some rights that are not in the UN Declaration. It doesn't, and so even though the UN Declaration was passed in 2007, some people said, well, why do we need to do this anymore? You know, we just need to observe the UN Declaration. Well, there are some rights that are particular to Americas, and one is protection for people's involuntary isolation, which is not so much the case in other continents. Another, um, the language on treaties is stronger in the American one, and there are some other articles not only that, but the, um, the Inter-American Court has probably more cases in litigation on indigenous people's rights than any other uh, international regional system. And uh, of course, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights has been critical a number, more and more indigenous peoples in the Americas, well, in the United States, certainly in Latin, Central, South America, they, they really use this forum. But the United States indigenous peoples are beginning to understand the importance of this. So they have these special hearings and they do reports and they do hearings at which um, people from communities are allowed to give testimony. For instance, years ago, um, I participated with members of leadership from Laguna Pueblo, Navajo Nation, and the, um, one of the tribes in Arizona on um, desecration of sacred sites from extraction of minerals. And that was kind of a theme report that they were writing up. So um, that's another forum. I think that's my last slide. Yeah. So um, lots of opportunities. You don't have to be a lawyer to participate. And uh, an important thing to know is that these declarations, they were really pushed by people who were fighting for their rights and uh, they weren't always lawyers and, and judges and legal scholars. Um, so I, I really owe a lot of gratitude to the um, 
many activists who insisted on going internationally because they just couldn't see domestically that we could ever, as long as the laws are the way they are, and you heard about the doctrine of discovery a lot this week, um, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to keep beating our heads against the wall. Um, and so that's why we, we want um, international recognition of our rights in many cases. You have been listening to the BartCast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the BartCast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.